Happy Saturday. It is April 2nd, 2022, and you are listening to Morning Meeting. I'm Ashley Baker. And I'm Michael Haney. We are two of your deputy editors here at Airmail. Welcome to the cruelest month. This weather was ridiculous in New York this week. It was like 21 degrees, and then with the wind chill, it was approximately negative seven, and I feel like we should be refunded three spring days. Yes. Who do I see for a refund? I'm going downtown today to get a linen jacket made because I feel like if you build it, spring will come, right? Why not? That's right. You got to live into it. The definition of optimism, right? (laughs) Absolutely. We have to. I mean... I'm walking around shirtless all day today in the West Village. So if you see me, just wave a hello. You'll do anything for the ladies, Michael. Giving them what they want, as always. (laughs) I love it. All right, Michael, let's get right into the issue. We've got a lot of fascinating stuff happening today. And I think we should first of all talk about our favorite topic, which is private lives of people we don't know. And Sue Heritage is a writer at large for Airmail. And he is a newspaper editor, writer, columnist based in Kent, United Kingdom. And it turns out that Stu, of all people, is able to put Putin's private life really into scale for us and tell us exactly what we need to know about one of the craziest people who's ever walked this earth. So welcome, Stu. Hi. So tell us a little bit about what you discovered over the course of your reporting this week about the private life of Vladimir Putin. I mean, well, I was trying to initially try to sort of discover a motivation for him, really, because there's been so many, so much speculation in the media about what's going on in his mind and what happened in his past that might have informed all these horrible things that he's doing at the moment. And I kind of figured it might be good to look at his personal life because he doesn't give very much away. Everybody's seen what his torso looks like in all those photos he takes of himself. And there he was on TV singing on Blueberry Hill once. And that's literally, as far as the person goes, that's all anybody knows. It kind of painted a picture of sort of a put-upon dad, really. He's got a couple of three-year-olds. He's got a, a sort of an ex-wife who's moved on to a much more handsome man. You could, apart from all the invasions and horrible murder... You could very easily do a sitcom about him as a just a downtrodden dad. Well, with all of the Botox, he looks like a Bond villain. And now, per your reporting, it seems like he has the lifestyle of one, too. Tell us a little bit about this rhythmic gymnast that he is now entangled with. The world's most flexible Russian, she was once referred to as. Yeah, her name is Alina. And it's not really known when she and Putin got together. In, I think, 2008, a Russian newspaper said that he had divorced his first wife to be with her. And that quickly resulted within a week of the newspaper being shut down. So I don't know if maybe they were onto something. Five years after that, they sort of went public. They didn't go public because he's never sort of formally recognised her, acknowledged her existence. But he divorced his first wife. And she's the unofficial first lady of Russia at the moment. And they have children together. And she's possibly hiding in Switzerland currently. How old is she? I mean, age is nothing but a number. But I think she is about 35 years younger than Putin, which is, I think, significant because his first wife left him for someone who was 20 years younger than he was. So I wonder if he's trying to sort of go one better. And she has a very curious job that earns her around $10 million a year. Can you tell us exactly the name of the bureau that she runs? Very quickly, 
and sort of surprisingly, she became an MP very shortly after being linked to Putin and did very well, strangely. And from that, she's sort of become a media magnet. She's the chair of the board of the biggest national media group in the country, and she's paid the equivalent of $10 million a year. For some reason, she must be incredible at her job. That's always the explanation. In all seriousness, too, a lot of pundits are pointing at this woman as perhaps the only person who may be able to talk some sense into Putin. Do you have any faith in that theory? I mean, I don't know. If she is, she hasn't done a very good job of it until now. And he seems so distant and so aloof from everybody. I'm not sure if even being sort of henpecked by his wife would make much of a dent in in his decisions. So, Stu, I think what I'm hearing here is between these women and everything, as you sort of touched on a moment ago, you wanted to kind of get inside the head of like, what makes Vladimir Putin tick, right? And what do you think you've discovered? He's like all men, right? Exactly. Yeah, I was going to say he's a kind of an everyman. He's got an ex-wife that he lives in a giant house. So I'm assuming there's some sort of financial obligation to her still. He's got all these more children than he knows. I feel it's I think it's seven currently, but maybe more. One of his sort of illegitimate daughters is a DJ and she's got a fashion house and she's on Instagram a lot. And so that just sounds like a nightmare. And he's got to he's got to hide all his wives sort of in bunkers around the world to stop them being assassinated, which is I mean, who can't relate to that? Right. So as you say, he's like all of us. He's desperately trying to juggle his work and his family. And that's a little stressful. So what else he needed is divert your attention then maybe start a war, right? Exactly. Some people garden. Some people invade other countries. Stu, we're seeing this trend right now among world leaders. We've seen it in your country of the United Kingdom with Boris Johnson and also with Putin and Russia. These guys just have a lot of kids. Do you have any theories of why that might be? I mean, I think Boris is up to seven or something. We've got Putin at six. They're very close in terms of kids, Boris Johnson and Putin. I don't know. I think it's the really fascinating thing is that they neither of them sort of will acknowledge how many children they have at all, which is that's very bizarre behavior. It took, I think, the birth birth of his most recent child for Boris Johnson to offhandedly acknowledge that there are six of them. Maybe I think it's six, it might be seven. And Putin is just people sort of pulling threads. Literally, the daughter of somebody who he's alleged to have had an affair with just looks exactly like him. That's the only sort of thread that people have got. It's uncanny. You should go on Instagram and look. Just to draw a connection between the British Prime Minister and the President of Russia, you have what you refer to in your story this week as the Love Actually theory that Vladimir Putin is actually living out the plot line of Love Actually, right? Yeah. Tell our listeners about how he may in fact be trying to live this out in this uncanny representation. If he is, that's lovely because Hugh Grant is, I think the Hugh Grant from Love Actually is the the ideal prime minister that we never had because he's kind and he's thoughtful and he loves hanging out at airports and watching people hug. In Love Actually, he falls in love with his tea lady. And then there's Svetlana, who is one of Putin's alleged mistresses. Um, And she used to be a cleaning lady. So he's, I think he has maybe a fondness for the lower classes. I'm not sure if that's the right term, but he can see the status isn't important to him. It is now because he's paid her millions of dollars and she's a millionaire and she lives in a gigantic house in the middle of Moscow. I like the love actually theory, Ashley. Michael, I like any mention of love actually, but I agree a hundred percent. And frankly, I think Hugh Grant probably should run for PM. It seems like we've got a power vacuum over there in the UK, right? So why not? Yeah, people have voted him in. Everyone got excited because they said he might play Doctor Who. And I mean, there's not much of a step. If you can travel through space and time, you can handle Brexit. Stu, we had a celebrity as president here and that all worked out so well, right? 
Exactly. Yeah. I mean, what a blueprint. What could possibly go wrong? I just want to point out the luckiest man in the world is we forget up until Boris Johnson was within like days of probably having to stand down as PM with a no confidence vote. Right. And then what does he get? Vladimir Putin invades Ukraine. And all of a sudden, like that's all taken off the table. Right. He's almost the luckiest man in the world. Thanks to Putin. It's all gone away. And the crazy thing is, the investigation into Partygate came to a conclusion on Monday, I think. And it's quite damning. There are several people within Downing Street who've been fined multiple times for breaching COVID regulations. But it came out just after Will Smith slapped Chris Rock, so nobody cares. Everyone's so excited about (laughs) someone getting hit at the Oscars that an entire political scandal is just passed by completely unnoticed. Well, Stu, we're obviously going to have a lot more to talk to you about in the next few weeks as all this unfolds. So for now, we're going to let you go. But we want to thank you again for a wonderful story. And thank you for coming on the show. It's always great to talk to you. It's always such a pleasure. Thank you. Thanks, Stu. Bye, Stu. Party on. Thanks a lot, guys. Thank you. Always great to hear from Stu. I love when he can psychoanalyze Putin for us. And we have a story that links up with this by Jonathan Friedland. And I kind of think about it as the great communicator 3.0. You had Churchill was a great communicator, then along came Reagan. And a lot of people right now, they're looking at Zelensky and his mastery of ruling the airways right now. And as Jonathan points out, the real reason for Zelensky's success is he's not merely a politician with a knack for communication, but what's missed in in descriptions of him is, as a former entertainer, you know, he had a TV show, is the fact that he made his fortune as a phenomenally successor producer of television. And as Jonathan revealed, his core team in the presidential palace right now is the same group that ran his production company. His speechwriter, for instance, is a scriptwriter. And so this is a guy who is, they're really showrunners advising him in his media strategy. And Zelensky has adapted everything he learned from conventional TV to the idiom of social media. So he understands, as Jonathan points out, that in this new era, a war leader doesn't stand behind a podium declaiming a speech packed with rhetorical flourish. Instead, Zelensky's message is that he's a servant of the people and he's one of the people. So he shows up not in a suit, but in what a guy in the street would be looking like, a volunteer, the green t-shirt, the stubble, and all of this creates a knack for connection with not just the Ukrainian people, his country people, but all of us around the world. When I was reading this story, I was thinking, where was Zelensky and his team on Sunday night? I mean, the Academy needs these people. Will Smith needs these people. These guys are masters at Hollywood in a way that Hollywood can only dream of achieving at this point. It is that contrast. And it's like, as he quotes one of the observers about all this, and they said, by comparison, you've got Putin, who's this Botoxed Bond villain who sits at a table 85 feet long with two other people on her side from a bad movie. And then you've got Zelensky, this guy for the great community. Communicator 3.0, knowing just exactly how to shoot a short video on his iPhone, put it out there, and just literally go right to the people. I think we've solved all of the problems in the world here today. We have figured out, first and foremost, how to fix Hollywood. Just hire Zelensky. The guy seems like he's got plenty of spare time on his hands. (laughs) Once he's done pounding Putin into smithereens, he can take on the Academy. It's perfect. Yeah, whip them into shape, right? Seriously. Give him a spine transplant. Yeah, seriously. We're not going to get into the Will Smith debacle debate over here today because, frankly, so many other smart people have been talking about it all week. But what a moment for Hollywood. You're talking about sort of like springtime coming back here to New York. And we have a wonderful piece of reporting this week by Jensen Davis about 
what I thought was this one-off little trend, but it, in fact, Jensen reveals it to be something deeper. And I'm not saying sinister, but it's like many things these days, what seems like something quaint and small actually has deeper tentacles, right? Will you tell us about a little thing called Blank Street Coffee? So Blank Street Coffee is a chain of mobile coffee carts that have been popping up all over Manhattan in the toniest hipster enclaves from McCarran Park in Williamsburg to the East Village. And Jensen, who's one of our writers at Airmail, talks about the fact that when she used to commute from her apartment on the Lower East Side to the Airmail office in the West Village, she'd pass by one of them. Now, I think there are 24 of them around Manhattan or 34. I think she says now by the end of this year, there's going to be 100 around New York. There'll be 22 coming to London, as well as Boston, Miami, Washington. But we first used to say, oh, oh, there's a little pop-up indie barista little place there. And in fact, once you go digging, you find that this is, what is it? It's about like bros with VC money. These are big bros, big pockets, big tech. $30 million they've raised. It's all big. It might be good coffee. I think it's just okay. But if you value a local coffee spot, it's not blank street coffee. So do not go in and think, oh, I'm just supporting this cute little startup in my cute little neighborhood. I just love when someone looks at something, oh, it looks so quaint. And then you dig into it and find, of course it looks quaint because there's $30 million of VC money, even from the investors behind Allbirds and Warby Parker and guys trying to sort of make this thing seem so casual, but in fact, there's a deep financial plan behind it. I drink most of my coffee at home. By the way, have you heard about this new website called beans.com? It's the worst name, B-E-A-N-Z.com. No. So you should check this out. It's very cool. It's oddly enough, it's from the people at Breville, the like coffee machine, appliance maker, whatever. But what they've done, which is very cool, is they've partnered up with a lot of really small roasting companies from all over the US and they collect them all on this website. It's cool. You can take a little quiz and figure out what your coffee flavor profile is. And then based on your preferences, they will send you a subscription of freshly roasted coffee beans from all these tiny little roasters all over the country. It's very cool. It's a good way to get out of your coffee drinking rut. Flavor profile. Isn't that like a box you have to fill out on Tinder? What's your flavor profile? Kind of. I wouldn't know. It's either caramel, fruit, or chocolate. Can you guess which one mine is? Chocolate. Caramel. Sorry. (laughs) Anyway, the coffee at my house has never tasted better. You got to come over one morning and have some. Anyway, on to more serious matters. On to more serious matters. There's nothing more serious than the rebirth of Roller Boogie, if you ask me. I love this story. So a little over a decade ago, there was a story that was splashed all over the tabloids, and it was about the English director, Rupert Sanders. He had an affair. He was the director of Snow White and the Huntsman. He had an affair with the star of that movie, the actress Kristen Stewart, and it broke up his marriage. And his he was married to Liberty Ross, who was an English model. And this was all over the tabloids. And this poor woman, like, she really suffered through it. Well, it turns out that all's well that ends well because she moved to Los Angeles. She found love again with Jimmy Iovine, the founder of Interscope Records, who also happens to be a billionaire thanks to his headphone business, Beats by Dre. And now, of all possible things, she is reviving Flipper's Boogie Palace, which is a roller skating rink that her father founded in Los Angeles in the 1970s. It was only open for two years from 1979 to 1981, but it really brought a cool cross-section of Together, all around the beloved sport of roller skating. So Liberty is reviving this with a roller rink in Los Angeles. And now on April 15th, she's opening up a roller skating rink in New York at, in the sunken plaza at Rockefeller Center. So hooray, Michael, you will now be seeing me on three wheels. 
Yeah, they're taking over the ice skating rink there in the off season. But for roller skating, you're either on the roller skating and thinking of yourselves as being in a Beyonce music video, or you're a little like me and you just have flashbacks to being a pimply faced 13 year old being loaded on a school bus for a field trip where you went co ed roller skating at the roller rink in town and couldn't find anyone who would allow you to let them hold your hand. So you just sort of like stumbled around with couple of the guys and leaned against the wall. But I'll get over that flashback and I'll go there. So funny. I think you and I should go down there and check it out. We should record morning meeting on skates. Now that would be one for the ages. There you go. Because can you skate and record a podcast at the same time? That's the definition. If anyone can find out, it will be us. Exactly. And on the subject of podcasts, we've got a nice surprise today. Okay, Michael. Well, we have Leon Nafok here, who's one of our favorite podcasters. He's probably best known for creating and hosting Slate's podcast, Slow Burn. And the first one of those was about the Watergate scandal of Richard Nixon. The second was about the Lewinsky scandal. And now he is on the fifth season of his latest project called Fiasco. And it is all about the AIDS crisis and the series of decision-making and the personalities involved and really the story behind the story of what was going on in American culture at the time. So we're very happy to have Leon Nefak here to speak with us all about season five of Fiasco. Welcome, Leon. Hi, thanks for having me. All right, so you have tackled a lot of fascinating topics over the course of your podcasting career. What really intrigued you about the AIDS crisis, and when did you come up with this idea to address this in your latest project? COVID made us interested. We were like living through a pandemic that totally transformed American society, and we wanted to know what it was like to live through the last one, or you know, the last time that same exact thing happened. We were obviously aware that there were going to be major differences, but it just made us curious because, I don't know, I feel like over the past decade or so, especially like the past six years, like since the Trump presidency started, people have been really conscious of the fact that we're like living through history all the time. Like we wake up in the morning and see the news and we're painfully aware that people are going to be studying this in 30 years for if anyone's still around then. And I just think that like that's made it more apparent that these big historical events like the AIDS epidemic that I think can be sort of like abstract in our minds from this remove that we have. It makes you realize that they unfolded one day at a time also and that like no one knew how they were going to turn out and they were reading the news every morning to see what the next thing was going to be and i think when we like look back at something like the aids epidemic in retrospect or any you know, really any of the topics we've taken on in, in fiasco or, or slow burn before that there's like a feeling that they come kind of like ready-made with a beginning middle and end and invariably we find out that there was always uncertainty and suspense in real time and that's sort of the mindset we're always trying to inhabit and i think aids called out to us because um it was just really obvious that even people who think they know what happened can't possibly know all the details all the subplots all the moving pieces that had to align for the story to turn out the way it did. What surprised you? What struck you? What was, I mean, just made your jaw drop in all this? The thing that comes to mind when you ask about my jaw dropping is this piece of audio involving Ronald Reagan's press secretary. He was asked a question during a press conference. I believe the year was 83, maybe it was late 83, maybe it was 84 even. And he was asked a question by a journalist about this disease that was afflicting gay men. And so this reporter asks the press secretary, like, has the president been briefed on this? Does he have any point of view. And the spokesperson just laughs at him and makes fun of him and sort of implies that maybe he's gay and that's why he wants to know. And like the whole room laughs. We all sort of have, again, this sort of abstract notion that the government was indifferent, that it took so much activism and effort to get 
the authorities to care about this. And you sort of think you know what that means, and you listen to a piece of tape like that, and you hear that laugh, and it becomes vivid in a completely kind of transformative way for me. But in terms of things that I really didn't know, which is really most of what's in the series I didn't know, I'm someone who absorbed the bare outlines of the story through being alive. I never took a class about HIV AIDS. I never think I'd seen How to Survive a Plague, but I'd never done any affirmative, made any affirmative effort to like learn what happened. So for me, everything was new. But like one thing that surprised me was how young everyone was. And again, like maybe it's obvious when you do the math, but like you imagine historical events and you imagine them populated by grownups, by people who know what they're doing and who have their lives figured out. And then you realize that all these activists, and not just the activists, some of the doctors too, that were instrumental in bringing attention to this to this epidemic, they were like all in their 20s and 30s. And like the fact that everyone who was dying was so young, like it made me realize how different the epidemics were. I mean, like you realize that with COVID, the majority of deaths are the elderly, right? Like, and they happen sort of out of sight as a result. Like we sort of don't feel the numbers because the people who are dying are people who have been made sort of invisible by society anyway. And I think you had the same thing happen with AIDS. Like the amount of time that had to pass when the disease was primarily affecting gay men when it just didn't become a national story and did not command any attention. It's just staggering, especially again, when you remember that people were like this unfolded day by day, like for something to take years. I feel like living through the moment we're in now, you get an appreciation for how long years is. Leon, a lot of the people that you speak to in this, this is relatively recent history that you're going back to. I mean, we're talking about the 1980s here largely. And, you know, some of the people that were the major players in this are still alive and you were able to speak with them. What was that like to get them to revisit this period of their own personal histories? Well, we felt very lucky to get to talk to them, for one thing. And I was just very aware that, like, so many of their friends were gone. These people were st- are just their survivors for reasons that are impossible to know. They were able to avoid the fate that so many of their friends and neighbors and lovers were, suffered. I don't want to talk too much about this because I think you do such a great job of it in the podcast. I think we want to just encourage our listeners to go and check this out. You will not be disappointed. It is called Fiasco, the AIDS Crisis. Tell us, Leon, exactly how we can listen to it because it's a little different from your previous podcasts. Yeah, so Fiasco Season 5, The AIDS Crisis, is available exclusively on Audible. It's an Audible original. Thank you so much, Leon, and congratulations on another amazing project. Great. Thanks for being here, Leon. Thank you guys so much for having me on. I really, really appreciate it. So speaking of all things coming out of the past, we have a very informative story this week by Spike Carter, who is a contributor to Airmail as well as a filmmaker who is working on a documentary about Julia Roberts' brother, Eric Roberts. And he is here to tell us this week about Fun City Editions, which is, as he describes it, a new goldmine for movie lovers that gives fans access to long, out-of-circulation treasures. So welcome, Spike. Hey, guys. Okay, so what exactly are we talking about here? Fun City Editions? What is this? So it's one of the kind of niche boutique home video distributors that sprung up kind of in the wake of the Criterion Collection and the success of, of that brand. Fun City started in the like early days of the pandemic when all the like repertory cinemas were closed. Yeah, so back in the day, you'd be able to go to a, there were these curated sources for cinema lovers like repertory houses and video stores and those cultures are kind of non-existent because those brick and mortars don't exist in nearly the same way that they used to. So these boutique home video distributors like Fun City kind of they fill that gap. So Fun City's founder, Jonathan Hertzberg, so far with his kind of fledgling 
collection of, of films. It's really, the company is just him. So it feels almost like a, a cinematic mixtape. This one a film lover who worked at IFC and Kino Lorber, just seeing what movies that are sort of out of the discussion and out of circulation, he can acquire the rights to, which is a pretty like cumbersome process. And in acquiring the rights, then scan the original camera negatives or theatrical prints so that in reintroducing these sort of neglected movies into the current landscape, they're presented as pristinely as possible on the Blu-ray formats. It's a format that really, unlike VHS or DVD, really accurately displays the original picture and sound of the films. As far as like the films that they've done so far, it's like you have movies like Alphabet City from 1984, which is our first release, which has a original soundtrack by Nile Rodgers. She Smile from 1975, which director Michael Ritchie did the year before he did Bad News Bears with Bruce Stern and Melanie Griffith, the year that she started acting. A movie like Rancho Deluxe from the same year by director Frank Perry, starring Jeff Bridges, who met his wife on that set with Sam Waterston and a soundtrack by Jimmy Buffett. You have a movie like Radio On, and what's fascinating about a company like Fun City making sure that these movies don't fully fall through the cracks of time. With a movie like Radio On from 1979, it's a one of the few British road movies, which was clearly influenced by Tulane Blacktop from the beginning of that decade, which itself spawned from Easy Rider. So with Fun City putting out a title like Radio On, rare British road movie, Jonathan Hertzberg is introducing that movie to American cinephiles. And so from there, Radio On might be cited as an influence by a filmmaker soon. So their newest release, which they're announcing this weekend, is Yvonne Passer's Born to Win with the late George Siegel as a sort of smart-ass junkie and former hairdresser as Karen Black and Paul Apprentice, an early Robert De Niro performance. And in a movie like that, you can very clearly see the influence that it would have had on Uncut Gems, for example. Like you mean Uncut Gems? Yeah. Okay, good. Just try yeah. <laughs> what excites me about how you describe it is it takes us out of just that Netflix algorithm of just, if you like this, you like this. And this is more of you feel like you're in the presence of the music geek or the film geek. And I use those terms affectionately. You're just like, dude, if you like that, you're going to love this. And just pressing it into your hand and telling you to watch it. And I think it, it's got that enthusiastic endorsement from him, right? Absolutely. And also the physical format is pretty important and it's been relegated to obscurity with the ubiquity of streaming. But I remember hearing about how, for example, even something like James Cameron's Avatar is not immune to streaming censorship. So if you watch Avatar on Amazon Prime, they cut out the ponytail sex scene. Like that's just taken out of the cut. So it's amazing when you're watching movies streaming, they can be just kind of sliced and diced without you necessarily knowing it. So the physical format is kind of the only way to assuredly have the director's intended cut of a movie. It's immune to various forms of excising censorship. So Spike, to be clear, you're still streaming these or are you buying Blu-rays of them? So yeah, Fun City Editions releases their movies on the Blu-ray format. For those of you who want to get in on this is like you would go to vinegar syndrome.com or funcityeditions.com or funcityeditions.com and you'd also make sure you have a blu-ray player at home right yes exactly thank you so much spike all right we'll talk to you soon about all things movies yeah cool awesome have a great day thanks spike take bye. care man all right bye 
Well, that sounds like an awful lot of fun, Michael. Thanks so much to Spike for joining us. Before we go off into that good weekend, do you have anything at all you can recommend? I do. I have one thing, and I would say before you get to it, I hope one of the positive things you used your time for over the past two years was maybe to catch up on the masterpiece show that is Atlanta, which stars Donald Glover, Brian Tyree Henry, Lakeith Stanfield, and Zazie Beetz. If you're a fan of the show, you know how innovative it is. If you haven't seen it, catch up now, because after a unbelievably long four-year hiatus, most of which was to allow the cast to pursue outside ventures, including an Oscar nomination for Stanfield. It's back for what I guess I can confidently say is a triumphant return. And this is a show that features some of the most sophisticated storytelling on TV and features a visual style that leaves you wowed. It's one part comedy, one part drama, one part David Lynchian weirdness. And it's altogether, I think, just one of the best shows of the decade. And expect the unexpected when you watch Atlanta. So tune in now on FX. Wow, that's one hell of a recommendation. Thank you, Michael. I'm excited about it. Get in there. Go. What do you got? I love it. All right. Well, I have two live theater things for theater lovers everywhere. We've got the season in full swing here in New York on Broadway. First, we're going to talk about Macbeth. A new production of the Scottish play has just opened on Broadway. It is directed by Tony winner Sam Gold, and it's starring wait for it, Daniel Craig and Ruth Nega. Sign me up. This is going to be pretty incredible. The early reports are extremely positive and this is one you do not want to miss. And if you want something slightly lighter, there's a new production of Funny Girl on Broadway that's currently in previews. It's opening later in April, on April 24th. And it's starring Beanie Feldstein as Fanny Bryce. Beanie is so good and so funny. And one of my friends saw this last night and said it was just extraordinary. There are a lot of great actors in this and it's getting a lot of buzz. That's at the August Wilson Theater on West 52nd Street. So if you're coming to New York, two shows, highly recommend you get your tickets in advance because they will sell out. And Macbeth in particular is only running for about six weeks. So it's worth it. If you've been looking to justify a trip to our fair city, this is your excuse. All right, Michael, on that note, will you please read us out? And Curtin, yes. Morning Meeting is produced by Airplay Productions and edited by Jesse Cannon. Our co-editors are Graydon Carter and Alexander Stanley. Our chief operating officer is Bill Keenan, and our deputy editors are Nathan King, Julie Vitale, and Chris Garrett. Our CMO is Emily Davis, and our music supervisor is Randall Poster. The theme music is The Cute Monster by the Buddy Colette Quintet. A new edition of Airmail is published every Saturday, so please subscribe and enjoy all of our stories on airmail.news, which we update every day. You can also find us on Twitter and Instagram at Airmail Weekly. We will be back here next Saturday with another edition of Morning Meeting. In the meantime, be sure and subscribe at Apple Music or Spotify. But most of all, thanks for joining us.